0: Galatians 3, verses 15 through 18. To give a human example, brethren, no one annuls even a man's will or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring which is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance is by the law, it is no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, to see what's going on here in verses 15 to 18 of Galatians 3, we need to go back and look at the three paragraphs preceding, just very briefly, because I think Paul is answering an objection here in these verses, which has arisen because of what he has said earlier. First of all, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, you may remember that the point there is you have to putt the way you drive. That is, if you began the Christian life, through faith, in reliance on the Holy Spirit, you cannot complete it or improve it through works in reliance on the flesh. That's the main point of those verses. Some church members in Galatia had been bewitched into thinking that you could start the Christian life by faith, complete it by works. The Spirit, sort of a booster rocket to get you up out of the lower atmosphere, and then your rockets kick in to get you into a nice, smooth, round orbit. And Paul says, no, that nullifies grace and it dishonors Christ. If justification is by faith, sanctification is by faith. You begin and you go on and end the same way, by faith, not by works of the law. Second paragraph. Verses 6 through 9. What Paul does here is bring in the example of Abraham to support his initial point. Namely, he says that it was only through faith that Abraham was justified, and it's only through faith that we become the children of Abraham, not by works of the law. Third paragraph, verses 10 through 14. The same point is made, only here it's made, negatively. The point is made, namely, that if you do try to go on and live your life by works of law, you're under a curse rather than under the blessing of Abraham. If you do engage in works of the law, then you're under a curse. Or to put it another way, if you take the railroad track, the gracious railroad track of the law on which the locomotive of the Holy Spirit is pulling you to glory in the Pullman car of faith. You lift that gracious railroad track up and make it into a ladder to heaven on which you will now climb by your strength into heaven, demonstrating thereby your merit and your worth. If that's the way you treat the law, then you're under a curse or you are a legalist. That's the definition we've given to legalism. That's what Paul is opposing here, that misuse of the law. Even though we're all under a curse for the pride of legalism, the paragraph closes by saying Christ became a curse for us so that we might have the blessing of Abraham and not the curse of the law. Now, what's the point of that whole unit? Verses 1 through 14. I think it's this. You can't become a complete sanctified Christian. You can't become a child of Abraham. You can't enjoy the blessing of the Holy Spirit. If you are living by works of law. Instead of living by faith in the son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. The effort to keep the law as a means of inheriting salvation or obliging God to bless you or man to bless you is a transgression of the law itself and brings the law's curse down upon you. And So the Judaizers in Galatia are wrong to teach the Galatians that they should supplement their faith with works of law. And Paul is bending all his efforts in this book to root out that deadly legalism from the church. Now, here we are in verses 15 to 18. And I think what Paul is doing here is answering an objection that the Judaizers probably would have raised having heard this argument of verses 1 to 14. And I think they would have said something like this. Now, Paul, we don't agree with you about Abraham. We, we really don't believe Abraham was justified by faith the way you do. We think that faith and his works were done by him to show himself worthy of the blessing, and they did, and he received it by promise. But, Paul, we'll just, we'll just let you have that. We'll, we'll start with that assumption that Abraham was justified by faith. Maybe that's the way God wanted to start his history with Israel. But Paul, you seem to have forgotten something. 430 years later, God thought it was necessary to lay down a law on these same people, Israel. And if the law with its 600 plus commandments was given... After the promise, then surely the most natural understanding is that God now wanted to show us what we must do in order to show ourselves worthy of the inheritance. He gave our people a promise through Abraham, which, as you say, was received by faith. And then, Paul, he added law. Show us what our part in the salvation process must be. And so, Paul, when we go out into the churches of Galatia and tell the people, okay, you've begun with faith. Fine, you're sort of like Abraham. But now you've got to get on with it. Use your flesh, your own power, your will, your effort, and complete yourself. Show yourself worthy of the final inheritance. And I think Paul, in verses 15 to 18, is blasting that conception of why the law was added out of the water. Notice that verse 19, where we're going to pick up next week, starts, why then the law? And the reason he does that is because he has just shattered one answer to that question. You see, he has shot down the Judaizers' conception of why the law was given, And now they raise the question, well, why then the law? And that's what we're going to talk about next week. In verses 15 to 18, the point is negative. No, you are quite wrong. The law was not added to give a new basis to the inheritance. The law, according to verse 21, as we'll see next week, was not at all against the promises. We need to see how Paul sees the coherence of the law and the promise or the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. and That's what I want us to look at together. The text begins with verse 15. It's an analogy. To give a human example, brethren, no one annuls a man's will or adds to it after it has been ratified. That doesn't seem right, does it? Because we all know we can add codicils to our wills and we can, we can revoke them. So what I did here was poke around a little bit in the, in the literature to find out whether or not there might have been some different kinds of laws in those days. And what I found was that both in Roman and Greek and Jewish law, there were kinds of pacts, testaments, covenants, agreements, oaths, promises, which in fact, when they were made, could not be altered or revoked. And so what Paul is doing here is saying that that's the kind of pact that had been made with Abraham. Covenant, will, call it what you like. When God made a promise to Abraham and established it on certain terms and stipulations, it was the kind that could not be revoked, rooted in God's own unchangeableness. Then, what becomes of the Mosaic law, which is also given to those same people? Paul's point, in verse 17, is this. He applies the analogy. This is what I mean, verse 17. The law, which came 430 years afterward, that is, after the covenant with Abraham, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Paul agrees on two things with the Judaizers and disagrees on one very important thing. He agrees that it was God who made a pact with Abraham and it was the same God who made a pact with Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Same God. He agrees also that to Abraham was offered blessing on certain terms and to Moses and the people was offered blessing. On certain terms. There they're in agreement. But that's where it ends. Because Paul will not allow the Judaizers to put in his mouth the assertion that the way God offered blessing to Abraham is different than the way he offered it to Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai. It's not different. They are not contrary to covenants They are not contrary ways. If in the law, God had been telling Moses and the Israelites to earn their salvation, then the covenant with Abraham, I think verse 17 means, would have been annulled. If God were adding stipulations that people supplement their faith now, with works of law in order to show themselves worthy of the blessing promised to Abraham, the promise would have been voided and the covenant nullified. Because God's dealings with Abraham make it very plain that the blessing is given freely to those who believe rather than those who try to earn The blessing by works of the law. Had he taught something contrary to this, to Moses, had he told Moses that he should try to earn the inheritance in a different way than Abraham, his integrity would have been jeopardized and the covenant nullified. Well, what then is the law If it doesn't do that, and I suggest to you that the law is fundamentally a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant applied to a new stage of redemptive history. It is not a nullification or basic alteration. In both covenants, the way to attain blessing from God is to trust him For his grace, and in both covenants, final blessing depends on a life of faith, not just a single act of faith at the beginning. Or to put it another way, in both covenants, the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses, the inheritance or salvation is by grace, through faith, Not earned by works, but in both covenants, the faith, here's a very crucial point, the faith which saves so taps in to the power of God that it obeys. And obedience is such a necessary extension of saving faith that in both the covenant with Abraham And in the covenant with Moses, it is made a condition of inheriting salvation, not legalistic works of the law. That's not the condition. The obedience, which comes from faith, that is the condition for inheriting salvation in both covenants and in the gospel. Let me try to show you, because I know I'm flying in the face of what most of you have been taught. Because right at the heart of dispensational theology is what I regard in my less generous moments as a heresy. And most of you, my guess is, have been schooled on dispensationalism. And I want to show you that the dispensational claim that the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional and the Mosaic covenant is conditional and therefore they are contrary covenants. And that that's what lies behind Galatians 3 is dead wrong and has not exegetical support. And I want you to turn back with me to Genesis because the first thing I want to do to try to show you that is to point out that the Abrahamic covenant is not unconditional but depends for its fulfillment on the obedience of faith. Not on legalism, not on works, but on the obedience which comes from faith. And there are three texts in Genesis which, unless I am very blind, are clearly teaching that. The first one is Genesis 22. Genesis 22, verses 16 to 18. You all know the story. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac Abraham was willing to do it. He was obedient. He lifted the knife. God prevented him. And then it says in verse 16. Because you have done this, Abraham. I will skipping a few words there. I will indeed bless you and multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. By your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves because you have obeyed my voice, I don't know any other way to interpret this but to say, "Why is the promise going to be fulfilled that God made to Abraham?" Because he obeyed. Okay. Turn to chapter eight twenty-six, chapter twenty-six, verse four and five. Genesis twenty-six four. Here he's talking. God is talking to Isaac. Heir of the promise made to Abraham. And he says, I will multiply your descendants. This is the promise made to Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge my commandments my statutes my laws why is god going to fulfill the covenant made with abraham to his seed because of obedience finally genesis 18:19 genesis chapter 18 in genesis 18:19 god says i have chosen abraham him that he may charge his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Why is God going to bring to Abraham what he has promised him? Because he and his seed Keep and do righteousness and justice. So I conclude the Abrahamic covenant is not unconditional. And once you see that, the whole barrier to seeing the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant as one covenant of grace is removed. They are two applications of the same agreement. The agreement which makes the inheritance of salvation rest upon the obedience which comes from faith. Not works of the law done in our own strength for our own glory to demonstrate our merit to God. But obedience which comes from a heart of faith. God's ultimate blessing does depend on obedience, but not on works of the law. And such obedience is simply a life lived by faith in God's power and love. And what the law is, is a description of the way a person lives by faith under the theocratic system of that day. Which is why in our own day, I don't put any stock in testimonies which say I have made Christ my Savior, but not my Lord. I don't believe it, never will believe it, unless somebody can show me I'm understanding the text wrong, especially when I read a text like Romans 10, 9, which says if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your lips. If you confess with your lips that God raised him from the dead and believe and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and confess to the lips that He's Lord. I probably have those backwards. The point is, in that text, Romans ten nine, salvation is made to depend on confessing Jesus as Lord, the One who has the right to tell you what to do. And so, what? When I hear testimonies about people who have been to camp when they were ten and accept Jesus, and then they say they live quote, out of fellowship for 18 years or 5 years or 10 years and, and then God met them and now they've made him their Lord. I just believe that they were saved in the second instance. When the law is given 430 years later, it is wrong to think that any fundamental changes were made in the stipulations of God's covenant relationship with Israel. Of course, there was a, a grand sacrificial system added to uh, foreshadow the coming of the Christ in his sacrifice for sin. But basically, the commands of the law are simply a general outlining of what the life of faith would look like in the theocracy. And it would be terribly wrong to say that the Mosaic law was opposed to the teaching of the Abrahamic covenant or opposed in its teaching to the Abrahamic covenant and was a kind of parenthesis between the deal made with Abraham and the deal made with Jesus during which God was teaching people to earn their salvation. That's a serious claim. Moses himself saw the law as simply a restatement of the conditions of the Abrahamic covenant. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'll try to show you that from Moses' own words. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the law, the Torah. And the law is the very heart of this book. And here's the way the law talks. Moses said, because you hearken to these ordinances, notice the word because, and keep and do them, The Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love which he swore to your fathers. Who's that? It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. Do you see what that text implies? That text says, God will fulfill to you Israelites looking out over the group there at the Jordan River, God will fulfill to you the promise made to Abraham to love you, bless you, multiply you, if you keep these commandments. The only way I know how to make sense out of that is to say that the Mosaic Law is a restatement of the Abrahamic Covenant. The Mosaic Law is an unpacking of what was implied in the obedience required of Abraham for a new situation in redemptive history, namely under the theocratic rule of God. Faith, as it's evidenced in its fruit, was the requirement of both covenants. Now, if you want some verses, I don't have time to look at these with you, but if you want to jot down some verses where faith is taught in the law, here are four. Exodus 14.31, Numbers 14.11, Numbers 20.21, 20, Deuteronomy 1.32. So, Paul seems fully warranted in saying that the law which came 430 years after the promise did not nullify, didn't alter, but agreed with and was in perfect harmony with the covenant made with Abraham. Now, there remain two verses to understand, verses 16 and 18, and I saved them for the last because I think verse 16 is the key to understanding verse 18. So let's look at it. It's a very puzzling verse. Verse 16 of Galatians 3. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his Offspring, or your Bible may say seed. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to off, your offspring. And then he interprets that as which is Christ. Now, before we get into the difficult word offspring, let's get the main point before us. The main point is clear. The main point is God made a, a pact or a covenant or a promise with Abraham. And the heir of the promise, the heir, is Jesus. That's the main point of the verse. The seed or offspring to which the promise would come is Christ. Okay? And, and I think there are four reasons why he, he is legitimate in saying that Christ is the seed. One, very briefly, he's a Jew, a physical Jew, can trace his parentage back to Abraham. Two, He was a man of faith. And according to verse 7 of Galatians 3, only people of faith can be counted in the spiritual sense as children of Abraham. Three, Christ's death and resurrection atoned for sin and purchased all the blessings promised to Abraham so that the only way they can come to anybody is because Jesus bought them by his blood. And fourth, according to Galatians 3.29, the only way you and I can become a seed, an heir of Abraham, is by being united to Jesus by faith, which makes him, of course, above all, the seed. It says in verse 29, If you are Christ's, you are Christ's, me, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So, if we become descendants of Abraham and heirs of the promise only by belonging to Jesus through faith, then it's easy to see why Paul thought of Christ as the seed, par excellence, of Abraham. So the main point of verse 16, I think, is solid and secure that the promise made to Abraham and his seed climaxed in the seed, Jesus. And that all those who belong to him also become participants. Now we've got to go back to this troubling argument from the singular of offspring. Paul seems to be arguing that because the word seed or offspring is used rather than seeds or offsprings, therefore there's a singular idea involved and we can see Christ as the fulfillment of that singular idea. And that doesn't seem to work, does it? Because you all know that offspring and seed are plural in their meaning, usually anyway. It would be sort of like me saying, well, because it says in the newspaper, the Minnesota Twins are playing, no, no, I got that wrong, Twins, that won't work. The Twins baseball team, that's it, is going to play, therefore, there's only one person on that team, because it said team, not teams, and you'd say, wow that's crazy, because team means more than one people, and so does offspring and seed. And so many people, they read this verse, and they just scratch their head and say, what in the world? Paul can't get that out of that. Now, let me try to rescue Paul here, as Paul is no dummy. And uh, I am very slow, especially since it's Scripture, to kind of snicker and say, all oh, this is nonsense. Two observations make it somewhat understandable. One, Paul knows the word offspring is plural. He used it that way in the verse I just quoted from verse 29. <clears throat> he also used it that way in Romans 4.18 and Romans 9.7. He knows when he reads offspring or seed in Genesis, he refers to lots of people. He knows dummy. So he's not making a slip here. He's doing something very conscious. And so we got to give him benefit of the doubt, benefit of the doubt and try to figure out what he's doing. And here's the second observation that helps us see what he's doing. In Genesis 21 12, you don't need to look this up, you can mark it down. It says that the word, or the word offspring or seed is used to refer to one man, Isaac, as opposed to many descendants. It says in verse 12 of Genesis 21, In Isaac shall your seed be called, not Ishmael, not the sons of Keturah. In other words, what that verse does is take the word seed and apply it to a unified, limited, specified person among many people. Isaac, not Ishmael, not the sons of Keturah. He's the seed. I think Paul's antennas go up when he reads that. And he sees something that implies something. He makes much of it. In Romans 9, 7, he quotes that verse. And after it, he writes, this means that it is not the children of the flesh (coughs) who are the children of God, but the children of promise are reckoned as seed or offspring. Hear that? The children of promise are reckoned for seed. In other words, when Genesis 21, 12 calls Isaac, not Ishmael, not the sons of Keturah, the seed, Paul detects a purpose of election by which God is choosing a line or a person among seeds. One seed among other seeds. And Paul hears a narrowing down. Onto a unified person or a unified idea. And I don't think he's reading into the Old Testament here. Here's what he's saying in three steps. He's saying, if you understand the meaning of the word offspring in Genesis 21, 12. As something limited among the wider descendants. And if that seed represents a unified, limited offspring, not all descendants. And if you learn from other parts of Scripture that the Messiah is going to be the heir of the promises in a very special way in that he will bring them to pass and fulfill them and purchase them, then it's fitting, I think, isn't it, to say that God's promise to a limited, unified offspring of Abraham does refer in a unique and special way to the climax of that narrowing single line. And all the singular does for Paul is tip him off to a a meaning in the context. Everything doesn't hang on the fact that the word offspring instead of offsprings is used. And from Paul's perspective of later revelation, he's all the more certain that the Christ is the seed in a unique and very special way. And so even if we find it hard to get inside Paul's head here because he thought in ways a little different from us, the main point of the verse abides namely that the inheritance is promised to a seed who is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the promise without which no one else can inherit the blessing. Now that is crucial for understanding verse 18. So, Finally, let's look briefly at verse 18. There are no verbs in the first part of verse 18. And I'm not happy that the Revised Standard Version and most other versions use present tense verbs, is. I would like to translate it because I think it makes the connection more clear with what goes before, like this. If the inheritance had been by law It would no longer have been by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise, thus implying that the law could not have put it on a different basis. Verse 16 was written to show us what the word promise meant in verse 18. I think. The promise is Christ, the seed. Now, let's paraphrase verse 18 using that meaning. If the inheritance, that is, salvation, had been achieved by means of the law, that is, by merely keeping Moses' commandments, then the way of salvation would not have been by the promised Christ. Christ would not be needed if the inheritance had already been fully attained through the keeping of the law. But God gave the inheritance to Abraham by promise. Namely, Christ. The closest parallel to this is right across the page in my Bible in verse 21 of chapter 2 where it says, I do not nullify the grace of God for if justification were through law, Christ died to no purpose. Which is almost like saying if the inheritance had been based on law keeping, it would not have been based on the promised Christ. Yet Christ must come As the seed, therefore, if you make the inheritance to be based on law without the promise, then the Christ is in vain. Now, let me try to put it all together here in a concluding statement. Back to the Judaizers. The Judaizers were going through the churches of Galatia, going in and out these churches teaching, and they were saying, all right, let's assume that what Paul said about getting started in the Christian life is right uh, that's sort of like Abraham, he got started with faith. But now, you Christians, you've got to remember, God thought it necessary, 430 years later, to add a law. And surely that implies that it may be alright to begin with faith in a promise, but when the law is laid down, you've got to start working, you've got to start using your flesh, effort, will, to show yourself worthy to God if you want to inherit the promise. So you see, Paul, and you see churches, we're simply taking what God did in redemptive history in two stages and applying it to individual life in two stages. Get started with faith, fine, then move on to works. A lot of that in the evangelical church today. Paul's response, Galatians 3.15, goes like this in summary. There are among men and between God and man, pacts. Kinds of pacts which cannot be altered or changed. God made such a pact with Abraham and his offspring. And the pact was that salvation would come not to all of Abraham's descendants, but to those who are chosen and live, live by faith. No Christ, no inheritance. Christ must be the final point of the promise. Given the nature of God and the nature of the pact, no later stipulations, no later additions could annul it or void it. Therefore, in the law, given 430 years later, God is not putting the inheritance on a new basis. He's not saying, once I taught you to trust me, now I teach you to work for me. He's not saying, "Once I taught you to rely on grace, now I teach you to earn merit." He's not saying, "Once I taught you to magnify me through childlikeness, now I teach you magnify yourself through the energy of the flesh and the works of the law." No. God does not contradict his covenant in this way. He does not commend contrary covenants and ways of salvation.